1 through 17. As I said, this is the first Sunday in Advent, so we're going to take a look at the coming of Christ. Matthew 1 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Selmon, and Selmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealti, and Shealti the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Ibahud, and Ibahud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our faithful God and gracious Father, we thank you for fulfilling all the promises you have made to your people since the beginning of time. We especially praise you for the most significant promises. You told Abraham that in his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. You told David that one of his descendants would reign on his throne forever. And the New Testament teaches us that all your promises are yes and amen in Christ. As we enter into another Advent season, we reflect upon your faithfulness and the fulfillment of all your promises and how we, how blessed we are to be counted among those who are in Christ through faith in Him. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. On October 3rd, 1789, the first President of the United States, George Washington, issued an official Thanksgiving proclamation. The purpose of the proclamation was to set aside a day, quote, to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks 
for his kind care and protection of the people of this country. Also, that we may unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations, and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions, and finally, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue. Last Wednesday, we talked about the importance of Thanksgiving and how George Washington officially set aside one day um, to worship God and thank God and pray to God. But what I want to draw your attention to this morning is how George Washington ended this proclamation. This is what he wrote. Given under my hand at the city of New York the third day of October in the year of our Lord, 1789. It was common for past generations to talk about the year of our Lord, whatever that year happened to be. I think that's very important. I hope you have noticed that our whole dating system is divided in two because of the man from Nazareth. The initials are B.C. and A.D. B.C. talks about the time before Christ and it counts down the year leading up to the coming of Christ, which is why before Christ the years are all backwards. Just in case some of you kids were wondering, we count backwards because we're looking forward to Christ. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six. We're getting really close. That's why it all counts backwards because all before Christ is looking forward to the coming of Christ. And then we have A.D., which is Latin for Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. So today is November 29th, 2015, the year of our Lord, which is a reminder that we are living in a new age in which Jesus Christ is reigning from His throne in heaven. That's what we mean when we say this is the year of our Lord. Our Lord who rules and reigns from His throne in heaven. Now, since this dating system is so overtly in your face, Christian... Not surprisingly, many seculars have reacted to those designations, B.C. and A.D., and you may have read some scholarly journals or articles in which they change it and they substitute C.E. and B.C.E. C.E. stands for Common Era, which is when we live now, and B.C.E. stands for Before the Common Era. They prefer that designation. They think it's more accurate. Uh, to be honest with you, I think it may be a little better so long as we understand CE to mean Christ Empire and BCE as standing for before Christ Empire. Tragically, even many Christians have overlooked the fact that God sent His Son from heaven to earth in order to establish His kingdom, in order to establish His reign, in order to establish His empire. Which is to say, many Christians are ignorant of the Gospel. 
not trying to be provocative. I really mean that. Many Christians do not understand the gospel. So let's be real clear here. This is the Christmas season. We talk about Christ coming. We talk about good news. And by the way, gospel simply means good news. And this is a time when we celebrate the good news with great joy. So during this Advent season especially, let's be real clear on what the good news, the gospel is. What's the good news? Well, ask the average Christian. The average Christian will say, well, God sent His Savior, sent His Son, down to earth, take on flesh and blood so that he could live a perfect life. And because of that perfect life, he then qualified to be the unblemished lamb who could die on the cross, paying the price for our sin so that through repentance and faith in him, we could be forgiven. Is that the gospel? Yes, absolutely. That is the gospel. That is good news if you are a sinner. And that's emphasized in Matthew, and Lord willing, we'll look at this a little more next week, but what do we read in Matthew one twenty one? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to save his people from their sins. We'll tell you what, since this is the Christmas season, let's read another Christmas passage. It's a great time. Luke 2. Great time to read through some of these Christmas passages. Luke 2. I'll just read verses 10 and 11. This is the angel speaking to the shepherds. And you all know this story because you sing it. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. So there it is. Good news. Great joy. For unto you is born in the city of David a Savior. But who is this Savior? Who is Christ the Lord? This Savior is Christ the Lord. And we're going to come back to that in a little while because I think that is very, very important. We want to talk about specifically what Christ means. So, we have a Savior who is coming to pay the price for the sins of His people. But that is only part of the Gospel, if you will. And I want to make sure that we understand the whole Gospel, if I can use that term. And I want to make sure we have a full orb understanding of the good news of the Gospel. The good news of why Jesus came. So let's consider the question from this angle. Uh, what gospel, what good news did John the Baptist preach? Matthew 3, 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there was his message. You need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is right in front of you. That was his message. What gospel, if you will, did Jesus preach? Matthew 4.17 From that time, and that's after John was 
arrested. Then Jesus takes over. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist comes and he says, You need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is right here. Now is the time. It's coming. John the Baptist is put in prison. Jesus begins his public ministry. And his message is the same exact message as John the Baptist. And this is the message of the gospel. And if that's not clear enough, then turn to Mark 1, where this is made so clear you can't miss it. Mark 1, 14 and 15. And I want you to see this so it's very clear in your mind. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. There it is. Stop right there. Jesus comes after John's arrest proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, can we just play a little game? Here's the game I want you to play. It's called Let's Pretend. Let's pretend that never in our life have we read what comes next. We've never read it. Let's pretend like we're reading this for the very first time in our lives. Jesus comes. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching good news. And our question is, wow, I wonder what the good news is. I don't know because I've never read it before. Pretend like you're some, I don't know, tribe out in the jungle somewhere. You've never had a Bible and someone finally hands you a Bible. What's the good news? Well, let's read it. And saying, here it is. The time is fulfilled. That's significant. In other words, the time has finally come. And the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, so what is the gospel right here that Jesus is telling his people to believe? What they are to believe is that the time has finally arrived for the kingdom to arrive. Repent and believe this good news that the kingdom is here. That's the gospel. This is the good news. This this is not some eschatological issue out on the margins of the Christian faith. This is the gospel. So according to John the Baptist, according to Jesus, why do we need to repent of our sins? So that we can enter the kingdom of God. Why do we need to put our faith in Jesus Christ? so we can enter the kingdom of God. Can I give you yet another angle to consider? Why do we need to be born again? Well, so that when I die, I can go to heaven. Well, that's not what Jesus says. Turn to John 3. John 3, 3. Jesus answered him. He's talking about Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you. Okay, and if you've been here for a while, you know that when Jesus says truly, truly, that's his way of saying, please pay attention to what I'm about to say next because it is very important. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Jesus answered, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So why do you need to be born again? So that you can enter the kingdom. We need to repent. We need to put our faith in Christ. We need to be born again so that we can be a part of God's kingdom that Jesus ushered in. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. So yes, Jesus lived a perfect life. He died for our sins. We need to put our faith in Him. But all that so that we can enter into God's kingdom. Now, in order to have a kingdom, what do you have to have? You have to have a king. And that brings us to the first chapter in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1. So turn there if you're not there. Now, I haven't said this for a little while, so I'm going to repeat it again. Some of you have heard this. I don't care. I want it to be clearly embedded in your minds. There is one page in the Bible that's not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not inspired. So you should just tear that page out. And that is the page that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. Okay? And in the past, some people have said, Pastor, here it is. They've actually torn it out. You don't have to, okay? You don't have to tear it out. I still have mine. Okay, but this page right here, not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Why am I saying that? Because we need to understand that God has given us one book of progressive revelation. It's like a novel. God has a story in the beginning. God creates the heaven and the earth. And then there's the fall. And then there's this promise of redemption. And then we go to Abraham and David, who we'll get to in a minute. And then we have the coming of Christ. And we need to understand that a story is flowing here. You don't just start with Matthew 1.1. To be honest with you, I really don't like pocket New Testaments. Hand someone a pocket New Testament. That's, that's like someone saying, ah, oh, there's this great novel, Moby Dick. Let me give you the last two chapters. Start right here. If you start, how, how many books of the Bible are there? Anybody know? Good trivia question. 66. How many Old Testament? 39. Okay, so turning to, to Matthew, I know we call them books of the Bible. It's also called chapters. If you start at Matthew, that's like starting at the 40th chapter of the Bible. Would you do that with a novel? Would you say, wow, look at this great novel. I'm going to start at chapter 40. If you did that, you would be totally lost. Look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Who's David? Who's Abraham? <laughs> You'd be totally lost. You can't start with Matthew 1, 1. By, by the way, uh, I think it really is important. I mean this in all seriousness. If you're talking to non-Christian friends, uh, a lot of times people will say, you know, tell them to begin with the Gospel of John or maybe Mark's Gospel. And in all seriousness, you may want to challenge them to begin in Genesis. And I'm not just saying that because we have a big Bible. I know the fear is if you start in Genesis, they'll read Genesis because that's exciting, and then Exodus. But then they will get bogged down in Leviticus and they'll be done. I know That's the fear, if we can just be honest. But here's what you have to realize. Many people don't know who God is. They don't know that God is the Creator. So more and more, it's important to lay the foundation to understand that we believe in the God of the Bible who created all things. 
set aside a people for himself, has been preparing the way for his son. We, we can't assume that when we talk about God, we mean the same God. You may talk about God, but other people may be thinking Allah. Allah is not the same as Jehovah. Or they may have this kind of vague idea of who God is. So we really do probably have to lay more foundation these days. But at any rate, um, when you get to the New Testament, the story continuing on, and we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then from chapter, or excuse me, verse 2 to 16, we have the genealogy. And I read that earlier. And let's, we're in church, okay, so I want you to be honest, okay? I want you to be honest. When I read the genealogy during the scripture reading, how many of you thought in your mind, is he really going to read the whole genealogy? <laughs> is he really going to go through all that? How, how many of you, when you read through the Bible and you come to the genealogies, you read it like this? Abraham, the son of Isaac, Jacob, blah, 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 blah. How, how many... How, be, be honest. Be honest in your devotional. How, how many of you do that? Yep, yep. See, you know why you do that? Boring. Boring. I, I can't even pronounce half these names. I'm going to go right through it. And if, if you were writing a novel, okay, and, and, and look at Matthew as, as a novel. He's writing a gospel. He's writing his own book. Uh, would you say, okay, I'm going to begin with a genealogy. Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of... Or would you begin with something a little more dramatic? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Now, now there's an intro, right? Anybody familiar with that? Charles Dickens, right? Tale of Two Cities. Great introduction. I never even read the book, but I know the introduction because it's a great introduction. So... Matthew writes the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we're like, wow, couldn't you think of something a little more dramatic? You know what the answer is? No. Here's where you need to understand the story. Matthew is writing to Jews. And Jews have been waiting literally hundreds and hundreds of years for God to fulfill His promise to Abraham. And they have been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years for God to fulfill the promise that He made to David. And here Matthew is saying, the book of the genealogy of King David, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, finally the one you've been waiting for is here. And then he says, I'm going to prove it to you. And he begins with Abraham and he goes through this list. And if you're a Jew and you're reading through this list, you're like, okay, it's building, it's building, it's building. Could Jesus really be the one that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years? Could He really be the Lord's anointed? And it couldn't be dramatic if you're a Jew. And I was thinking about this as I was preparing this message. I think even today, if you were to hand this to a Jew and say, I know you have the first 39 books of the Bible. Can I show you the next book of the Bible, the 40th book? Tell me what you think. And I think if you were to hand the book of Matthew to a Jew and say, tell me what you think of the rest of the story, I think they would read this and I think they would tremble. 
And I think many have. Because they have to wrestle with the fact, could it really be that I've overlooked the fact that Jesus was the one promised? And Matthew is giving the evidence all throughout his book, which is why he says in his book over and over, this was to fulfill the prophet so-and-so. This was to fulfill so-and-so. Because he's demonstrating to Jews that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for for hundreds of years. He is finally here. It couldn't be any more dramatic. And what we need to see that the one who was here is the king. And here's what I want us to consider this morning. Three points. Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant. And I want us to look at the meaning of Christ. And you're thinking, oh boy, we're just now finally getting to the three points. This is going to be a long message. It's not going to be a long message. Long introduction. That's all been introduction. Long introduction, short sermon, so don't panic, okay? All right, so first point, Abrahamic covenant. Can I have you back up to Genesis 12? Genesis 12. By the way, God's people all along were were looking to the one that God would send who would crush the head of the serpent. In 3.15, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God's people were looking for the one the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent, bringing down his kingdom. And then we turn to Genesis 12 and we see that that one is going to come through Abraham. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and to your kindred and to your father's house, to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I'm going to read that promise again because you don't believe it. That's too good to be true. In you, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Every Single family on earth, eventually, in God's time, will be blessed because of the one who's going to come from you. Wow, who does that refer to? Galatians 3. We don't have to guess. Paul tells us very clearly. Galatians 3.16 Now the promises were made to Abraham. We just read some of them. And the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Wow, who does that refer to? The promises are Abraham and his offspring. Who does that refer to? That referred to the nation of Israel. That referred to the church. Big debates over this. Trinity had a big debate over this a while back. Who does it refer to? I don't know why there's such a big debate over it because verse 16 tells us. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and your offspring who 
is, tell me, Christ. The promises are made to Abraham and Christ. All the promises made to Abraham are fulfilled in who? Christ. This isn't hard. You don't have to have a PhD okay, in theology to understand this. You don't need a piled higher and deeper to understand this. Okay, You can have a low-grade education and understand this. The promises are made to Abraham and his seed. The promises are fulfilled in Christ. And I want you to understand what one of the promises were. Romans 4.13 Gonna be another one's gonna be hard to believe. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, singular, once again, that he would be heir of the what? World did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be heir of the world. That's very important. Abraham was looking for much more than a little sliver of property in the Middle East. He was looking to inherit the world. That's what he was waiting for. And then here comes Jesus. And Matthew says that Jesus is the son of Abraham and they're wondering, wow, could he really be the one in whom all these promises are going to be fulfilled? And Matthew is saying, of course, yes. And then he's also the son of David. Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7. And of course, a lot could be said on these. 2 Samuel 7. And we'll begin at verse 12. This is the Lord speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son, sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So when you come to the New Testament, the Jews were waiting for the anointed one. They were waiting for the son of David. They were waiting for this king. Matthew 22. Jesus asked them about the Christ. Matthew 22:41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? That's, that's what you call a softball question, right? Just, Whose son is he? And, you know, and they're just like, oh, come on. And the reason why they're saying that is because they just asked him three questions, one right after another, trying to trip him up. And then he says, I got a question for you. The Christ, whose son is he? And they think they know it. The son of David. Everybody knows it's the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Crickets. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Jesus was saying, yes, he's the son of David, but he's more than the son of David. He's also the son of God, which explains how he can be Lord. But everybody knew that the Christ was going to be born of David. They understood that because the promises were so clear, which brings me to the last point. What does this term Christ mean? Very important term. Matthew uses it a lot right here in the first chapter. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And of course, we're Christians, so we talk about Jesus Christ all the time. Or we talk about Christ Jesus. And then down in verse 16, it talks about in Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations, and then verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, and we'll talk about that a little more next week. So we use the term all the time, Jesus Christ, he is the Christ. What does it mean? What what literally does the term Christ mean? It means anointed one. It's the equivalent to the Hebrew Messiah. It means anointed one. So let's understand that Christ is not a surname. It's not his last name. Okay, Wayne Christensen, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his name. Jesus is his name. Christ is one of his many titles. He is the Christ. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the anointed one. So when we talk about the anointed one, what are we talking about? Well, let me ask you a simple question. Who in the Old Testament was anointed? Hmm. It wasn't supposed to be hard. You know anyone in the Old Testament who was anointed? Anybody know? Anybody in the Old Testament who was anointed? David was anointed. Very good. Anybody else anointed? Say a little louder. Kings were anointed. Yes. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. But mostly kings were anointed. So when Saul was king coming after David, David had opportunities to get at him, but he told his men, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. So the anointed one can be a prophet, priest, or a king. In Jesus' case, it's all three. But primarily, it's a reference to kings. So it is not a stretch to read verse 1 this way. The book of the genealogy of King Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Doesn't that make it clear? And then you come down to verse 16, of whom Jesus was born, who is called King. And then you can come to verse 16. Now the birth of King Jesus took place this way. We are talking about the kings. That is not a stretch. 
Matthew is also known as the royal psalm because he really does emphasize the fact that Jesus is the king. So we come to the next chapter, Matthew 2, and we have the visit of the wise men. And who are they looking for? The one who was born king of the Jews. And then Herod the king, he's troubled by this, and there's great irony. Herod the king is worried about the birth of the king, and he assembles the chief priests and the scribes. And he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So we can see that Christ and king are synonymous. And then they answer with that passage that we all know from Christmas, Micah 5, 2, which talks about the fact that the king, Christ, is going to be born in Bethlehem. So Christ means king. And that's what the early church was emphasizing again and again. So we turn to the book of Acts. We see the early church preaching. And and this is what we see in Acts 5.42. And every day, every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the what? Christ or as the King. That's very significant. So did they talk about the perfect life of Christ? They did. Did they talk about His atoning death on the cross? They did. But this is what they emphasize again and again. You need to realize the one who lived a perfect life, the one who died on the cross for your sins is God's anointed King. So again, this is what I believe a full gospel would be. Not just the life of Christ, the death of Christ, even the resurrection of Christ, but also 40 days later, the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God the Father Almighty where He sits at His right hand ruling and reigning over the nations. That's the gospel. God has sent His King to die for our sins and now He is reigning. And that's what we're celebrating at Christmas. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. King. That's what we're receiving this Advent season. King Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this good news of the coming of the King. And Father, may we be clear in declaring this message. And as Your people, may it be our joy to bow down before this King to confess that Jesus is Lord. May it be our joy, may it be our privilege to serve this King with our entire lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.